New Zealand statesman denounces Five Eyes NATO Pacific War Plan. Coming up on Citizens Insight. Welcome to Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's interview series on matters of national and international importance. My guest today to discuss this disturbing but urgent issue is Matt Robson, former Cabinet Minister of New Zealand. Welcome, Matt. Greetings to you. Um, so, Matt, this is the second time you've appeared on our show, but it's on a very different subject and it's an area in which you have a lot of experience. Just remind the viewers of a, your biography in this regard, because as, as a minister in the New Zealand government, you actually um, were had extensive experience in foreign affairs and the Pacific. Well, with my party, the Alliance, which went into coalition uh, with Labour in 1999, and our leader, Jim Anderson, became the deputy uh, prime minister, I'd always been the foreign affairs spokesperson, even as a backbencher, or not a backbencher, an opposition MP. I was on our front bench. And issues, I, I did all the work in terms of representing the party on international affairs, and I had a background in that of international law and politics. So uh, I worked with Labour before 1999, with Helen Clark, actually, as there was the, dip, the leader of the opposition at that time, in formulating a policy that made sure that we had an independent foreign policy, that we stopped having uh, our military dictated to by both Australia, uh, governments in Australia, and the United States with ever and ever increasing demands that we get offensive weapons that New Zealand couldn't afford, mm -hmm. and a country like Ireland was never asked for. And both of us had a passion, both parties, or leaders of parties, to have New Zealand develop, as far as possible, an independent foreign policy. So it's my background. No, that's great. Well. This is, um, we're, we're having this discussion at a, a dangerous time in the world, in my view, and it's, and it's getting more dangerous by the day. Let's set the scene for the full discussion though, because I want, I want, um, I want you to stay up front what we think the concerns is. And feel, please feel free to be as blunt as you need to be. Um, with this cabinet experience and extensive foreign policy experience, how concerned are you right now by the current trajectory of international relations as it affects the Pacific? Where do you think it's headed? Well, on a path to war, which is unfortunate when you name uh, Russia and China and all the countries allied with them as your enemies, uh, even if you dance around the topic from time to time, then you're lining your country up with the United States the greatest military power in the world and economic power for that matter, you are clearly into one camp. It's what my former prime minister in the coalition government, Helen Clark, called part of group think. And New Zealand, like Australia, has got cemeteries full in Europe and Asia yeah. of our young people, mainly young men, uh, sacrificed for imperial wars. And we're in that space again with the I think, I think it's Mr. Dutton, you, Mr. Pete Dutton, uh, yeah. talking about the drumbeats of war or words to that effect. Uh, well, they're getting louder and they're being orchestrated and our people are being propagandized uh, to believe that uh, we have to hate these other countries and their people. There's a Bob Dylan song. I learned to hate Russians all my whole life. If another world starts, war starts, it's them I must fight. 
to hate and to fear them, to run and to hide, but to do it all gladly with God on our side. In our case, God is the United States. Well, so I want, as we go through this discussion, I, I want people to bear in mind that you are a, a lawyer, a barrister with extensive experience in international law. And I think with your foreign policy experience and that, your, your opinion should carry weight. Um, there's a, you, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about China in this discussion, but right now China is not the only issue in the world, it's Russia. And what I find personally, Matt, is that um, people, people seem to be able to see the perspective of either one of those countries or the other, but not both. And, I, and, and they must be a bit confused by the fact that Russia and China um, work together. But right now, in, um, there's a backlash in our countries, I think, against some of the, the, um, the rhetoric about China. And, and there's, a, there's at least a, a stated commitment to try and put things on a better track. So that's people, you know, that, that's been part of the discussion. But in both of our countries at the moment, I think it's probably fair to say that when it comes to Russia and what's happening in Europe at the moment, it's, it is completely uh, one-sided that, you know, Russia is the great evil in the world, as per that Bob Dylan song, um, and that, you know, therefore, you know, what we, we are on the side of goodness and right. So what is your view of the narrative that, and this is the language they use, the so-called rules-based global order is under unprovoked threat by China and Russia, which Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's support for Russia is cited as proof of. Well, noticeably, when that mantra is repeated ad nauseum, it's as though the spokespeople who have it, whether they're politicians or journalists and so-called independent uh, journalist outlets, it's as though uh, they just don't bother to think that the people can spot a contradiction. So when you say unprovoked aggression in relation to what's happened in the Ukraine, well, you could make a case for saying that the Russia, Russian Federation has breached international law. I don't accept that, actually. I think there's far more complex than that to discuss the issue of uh, what the Russian army and the, the armies also of the Donbass republics are doing. But unprovoked is ridiculous because I think even the Pope in the Vatican has laid out that the role of NATO in this war uh, has been one of provocation. And certainly others who may have a different, different, different perspectives on uh, what's happening inside Russia, what Russian foreign policy is, they just don't say, this is not unprovoked. And the only way you can get away with calling it unprovoked, uh, which is a direct lie, is to ignore the history uh, going back, well, quite some time, but if you start from the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union and the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, uh, which was, of course, the Soviet Union's uh, and its allies' uh, pact, military pact, then everything that happened from there with the expansion of NATO, despite the promise that it wouldn't happen, uh, the involvement of the United States in particular, but its allies, the United Kingdom uh, and NATO countries like Canada, in the internal affairs of the Ukraine, uh, leading to the overthrow of the elected president in uh, 19, uh, 2014. I was going to say 1914, because that <laughs> comes into it. Uh, in terms of... Freudian, Freudian slip, that one. No, yeah, well, it's, it's sort of reminiscent. Yeah. But then the period afterwards is in New Zealand, our population, and I understand Australia as well, our parliament 
has totally been kept ignorant about the aggression of the Kiev regime, the role of Zelensky in being elected by promising that he would uphold the Minsk agreements, which gave autonomy guarantees uh, to the Russian-speaking areas, to 30% of the Ukraine, and to the uh, to the Russian Federation as well, and solemn international law, which was broken by the Kiev regime and by the US and NATO in undermining that, uh, that pact. And Zelensky was elected on the promise that he would respect it and bring peace. But uh, part of that, he was pressured and threatened, of course, personally. But uh, what happened was that the aggression from the Kiev regime intensified shelling, rocketing, destruction of towns. But much of the uh, type of destruction that happens in a war, which we've been shown over and over again, as supposedly just coming from the Russian side and the, in this present uh, continuation, basically, of the war, uh, was not shown. The one channel that was showing it consistently was Russian television. Yeah. And, of course, we're now, not in our country, I think it's off the air in Australia too. Right, yep. It's, it's censored. So it's always seemed strange to me. There's no outcry from our government, which says we're acting for democracy in the Ukraine by the position we've taken to be intervene in the war. And I guess we'll come to that because New Zealand has intervened in the war. And uh, the question of democracy is apparently to the fore. Apparently the Russian Federation wants to crush Ukrainian democracy, which is another laughable uh, fact, really, because it's a strange democracy. But the we're not allowed to hear or see alternative material and views. Yeah. Well, you, ra you raised it, and I think it's um, a good question to pursue then. In your legal opinion, does the support that Australia and New Zealand have given to Ukraine, this inter our intervention into the war, mean that we are, or ourselves, at war with Russia? Yes, I believe it. I believe we are because uh, the Russians call it special operation, and that's you know, debated. But by the way, I think that's largely the language we used about Afghanistan. It wasn't a war. Yeah, it was yeah. a special operation. So here we have a special operation declared by uh, Russian Federation in relation to the attacks on the Donbass. That's their, that's their position. It can be discussed. It can be argued. But uh, the war has been declared on the Russian Federation. Because when you declare sanctions, blockades, uh, that's part of the apparatus of war. When you provide war material to an army, which you use as a proxy uh, to fight another army, that's a war. And in anybody's definition, and certainly in the Nuremberg definitions, and New Zealand has provided material uh, to, to kill Russians, <laughs> to kill Ukrainians who are opposed to the Kiev regime, and anybody else who gets in the way. So, yes. New Zealand is at war with the Russian Federation. And where's the, where's the public acknowledgement or discussion of that in either of our countries at the moment? Well, I can't say as much about Australia. I do try and follow it, though I'm afraid the only uh, media that we get on a regular basis is Sky News, and I find them perhaps <laughs> a little bit um, underwhelming in their reporting on a lot of issues. I don't think sure. to one of your media. But in New Zealand... Uh, the people who should be taking the lead are in the government. And there's been no debate uh, on these issues. Many of the parliamentarians are, are ignorant into what constitutes a war, of course, even if it's not declared officially, you can still be at war, as we were 
for instance, in Vietnam illegally, uh, New Zealand and Australia. And the parliament debate in New Zealand was just on sanctions, as though that itself is an act of war, uh, which it is, it reaches a certain level, blockade, uh, trying to damage the economy of another country. But from there, the decisions to send uh, material, war materials, uh, help to finance the war, haven't been decided by our parliament. Uh, perhaps that comes to the question of how we run our countries, still allowing the crown prerogative in areas like this. Yeah. Other countries with constitutions generally perhaps tie their parliaments more to having to make these decisions and have them debated. But no, it hasn't been debated in New Zealand. It's just been accepted. And it's almost a slay of hand that, oh, well, we can get away with this. We can do that. Uh, all we're doing is a little bit of um, assistance, uh, particularly mentioned all the time as refugees and humanitarian aid. But uh, New Zealand has given money to the British to buy weapons, lethal weapons. Uh, plus, the other part that we're providing, uh, given us our size of our uh, resources in military terms, is intelligence. So we've got people in Britain and other places, probably in Europe, pinpointing where to kill people. That seems to me like an act of war. Yeah. Your Prime Minister was uh, in Australia uh, last week. She gave a speech to the Lowy Institute, which um, seemed to be very defensive. And maybe we can talk about that side of it in a minute. But yes. in, in she, she was twisting herself into knots to justify this position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Ukraine. And her essential justification, if I've got it right, is that um, we had to go outside of the uh, the, the UN framework to support Ukraine um, because the United States, sorry, the UN Security Council has failed. Why did she feel the need to justify going outside the um, UN framework? And do you accept her uh, assertion that the UN Security Council has failed? Well, uh, you know, the question of, um, of the veto, of course, is wider than this particular issue. And if anyone does any research, the, would be no surprise to know that the country that's used the veto in its interest most has been the United States of America. Surprise, surprise. Um, so the question of reform and who shouldn't use it. But when you have a situation in, where the world is not given the information about this war and the role of the United States and NATO uh, in it, in provoking it, in arming it, in financing it, in training, not just recently, but uh, back over a decade now, then how can the Security Council be saying they're making a decision uh, which is justified when they haven't got all their yeah. ability to put facts on the table? So if Jacinda Ardern, who as our Prime Minister and others in her cabinet, uh, stick to their uh, statement many times that they prefer the United Nations uh, to make these decisions. They also have the General Assembly to go to and put their position and call on the General Assembly uh, to take this or that uh, position and see how the world uh, responds. So it's, it's really a dodge by the New Zealand Prime Minister uh, to justify the uh, actions they're taking uh, without a full discussion in the parliament, without an, not just a full discussion, but an informed discussion uh, in front of the people. Yeah. Because just, just build on that. This 
this isn't in a vacuum. The difficulty of a discussion in New Zealand is that even our academics don't, who study or scholarly people don't want to put their heads up because the barrage that comes down, led by the Prime Minister, is that if you have an opinion different to the one that she's expressing, which is the same opinion as uh, Washington and, and London and, and Canberra, then you are a Russian troll. You are spreading disinformation. And therefore, your viewpoint is to be excluded. So it's very hard to get a balanced, reasonable, informed decision that the population uh, can back. So just return to your question. Uh, this is a dodge to say, well, we're doing this and we're doing it in this way uh, because the Security Council, tut tut, um, the Russian bad actors uh, yeah. using the veto. By the way, all the time, I've never heard of a, um, I can't even think of a time that New Zealand officially has condemned those other countries that use the veto in their own uh, interests, apart from the French when we were at odds with them over testing in the Pacific. When you say you get called a Russian troll, <clears throat> uh, we can uh, uh, perhaps reflect on your own your own life, Matt. As you've said to me, you've heard that many times before in your, in history. Oh, many times. Uh, you know, I started my involvement in politics as well, 15 or 16, and uh, well, before that, my parents were very involved in politics in Australia in various ways, gave me a grounding. But uh, the war, the American war in Vietnam, and in the early days when you were protesting and, and raising the issues of Vietnam, the standard answer from the type of establishment, which unfortunately acts the same way now, many years with the Labour government, but the Conservative parties running the country when I was young, uh, would say if you were opposed to the war and bringing up uncomfortable facts, that you were doing the bidding of Moscow, <laughs> uh, Beijing, uh, Hanoi, uh, who apparently were in an alliance together. They weren't uh, individual governments which had their own views, their own background, their own strategic interests. They're all in one cabal um, and making these decisions. But, so the original conspiracy theorists <laughs> in my government, or the government of the country, I don't like to call them my government. So, and then out it went. Now, I came at the end of the Cold War was still going, and it's, uh, it's, but it's, it, it stopped debate. And I, I used to notice the cowardice of people. They didn't want to be called a communist agent, a, a subversive, a, a treacherous person. Uh, and it took courage for many of the people who were speaking out uh, uh, to, to actually try and tell the truth. It's exactly the same now, the same uh, tricks and intimid it's intimidation and bullying. And I would bet it would be the same in Australia. That yep. They wouldn't, if you had a, um, an informed debate on a current affairs show, um, we, we wouldn't be given the respect to say, well, here's a viewpoint. Let me provide the where my information is coming from. Uh, my viewpoint is referenced by et cetera, et cetera, which is the way a debate should be, an intelligent and democratic debate should be um, exercised. But it's not happening in our country. And from my knowledge, it's not happening in Australia either. And not to make this personal, uh, Matt, but when we're talking about Jacinda Ardern, you do know her fairly yes. well, don't you? Yes. So, so, you, so you know of which you speak. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I know her, and I've never, um, in any uh, differences or criticisms, 
uh, made it personal. You know, I, I hear some dreadful things which come from you, uh, those on the right, uh, which are just personal attacks, you know, they include misogynist things about being a woman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's the question of the politics because our former prime minister, Helen Clark, has come out swinging, swinging against New Zealand's deeper and deeper uh, complicity in the five eyes. She has, Helen Clark, had the view that you can just have the intelligence and share it. Uh, uh, we can talk further about that. My knowledge and my understanding and experience with the five eyes. No, no, no. It's an instrument uh, for the total foreign policy of these countries. Um, but she has said that she is critical that we've got too deeply involved in their uh, machinations. She's had the same with the uh, expansion of NATO, 360 degrees NATO, it's now called, 360 degrees, and she calls it group think. Yeah. So she has recently come out, and this is causing the New Zealand government to have a nervous breakdown because the uh, criticism started to come from within the Labour Party, from what I call Labour royalty. Helen Clark is St. Helen. She's royalty. But the former uh, general secretary of the party, Mr. Mike Smith, uh, he has also come out with a detailed criticism of New Zealand's uh, lack of independence, subservience to the United States, uh, hysteria over China, and former some former members of parliament too, like Mr. Richard Northey, uh, are becoming very critical and outspoken. So this will come to it perhaps. Uh, when we look at the issues of the Pacific and the and the language that Jacinda Ardern used at Madrid for NATO um, and at the Pacific Forum that's on at the moment. My characterization as the Prime Minister is she's able to talk out both sides of her mouth, but we have to look at the actions of the New Zealand government, which are unfortunately uh, premised on getting deeper and deeper into the plans for war. All right. Well, um, let's actually let's actually dwell on that a bit before we get more into the Pacific, because the NATO question is one in which um, the first thing I read from you a few months ago was you warned that um, Jacinda Ardern was bringing NATO, uh, New Zealand back under the nuclear umbrella. Now, so um, this is where New Zealand's unique, and Australia doesn't have the same perspective. So I think you need to explain. What are the legal implications here of what news of what Ardern is doing vis-a-vis -vis NATO in relation to New Zealand's recent history of the last few decades on this question? You were the member for disarmament. Um, you know about this New Zealand. You know David Longy famously took a stand um, against nuclear-powered warships coming into Auckland Harbour, etc. So people may know about that. How does that relate to this picture, and why is it a why is it such an issue for Kiwis? Right. Extremely important issue because we have a legislation which says that we have no nuclear weapons in the country. Not only will we not have any nuclear weapons in the country, we won't take part in aiding, abetting, arming uh, nuclear uh, weapons of any sort, uh, weapons of mass destruction as well. And nor will we take part in the type of exercises that uh, where these weapons are used. NATO is preeminently in the world the the organization which has nuclear weapons, and not only has nuclear weapons, but has a policy that we will not have a no first use policy, yeah. uh, is contemptuous of the treaty uh, prohibition of nuclear weapons, which was, Australia hasn't signed yet, 
but New Zealand has and pronounces itself an advocate of it, which strengthens our 1987 legislation to show that in law, and if you're interpreting the law in the spirit of the law, that we will do everything to be opposed to those countries and organizations that uh, advocate and have plans for the use of nuclear weapons. Under the Nuremberg principles, what became clear international law was that the threat of these offensive weapons is also a war crime. And if you're on alert, if you're part of well, the United States, which of course dominates NATO, we're now closer and closer in alliance to them, uh, they have battle plans what they call often uh, tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, that needs to be explained how that's contained. You know, it's got a nice sound, tactical nuclear weapons that still wipe out whole cities and populations. But the law in New Zealand shows that we shouldn't be involved. We shouldn't be taking. By joining with NATO, military interoperability, we clearly have to be crossing the line. And now we're involved in the RIMPAC exercises up in uh, Afa Hawaii, uh, which 20, I think it's about 26 nations. It's, it's set in the Pacific. It's called the Rim of the Pacific. That's what it stands for. Oh, okay, yep. uh, but Norway's there. Denmark's there. The Netherlands is there. The UK is there. Um, so, you know, some... NATO members. Some Pacific. But, but, but that's involving these nuclear-armed forces. Yep. There's New Zealand up there. So the Prime Minister, neither the Prime Minister nor her present Minister of Disarmament seems to have spotted this contradiction in law, in policy, and in commitments to the country. We don't have a written constitution like Australia. We rely on, this is, you know, we rely on the myth of the, the, the it's, a, it's a bunch of laws and descended from the Magna Carta and there's this and there's that and you put it together and yep. convention, then you've got, you can, but anyway, the courts have to sort that out. Well, the public has spoken time and time again. They want New Zealand to stay away and not part of nuclear armed um, uh, military organizations. So put that together with the law. But if you are arguing this in a legal sense, there's plenty of information to show that New Zealand's government is breaching its legal obligations. And this is what's um, driving some of the backlash among these Labour royalty figures that you referenced earlier? Certainly. Uh, for a start, uh, interoperability. Where's been the discussion? New Zealand uh, has been involved with NATO formally since 2010. That's in a surprise to many New Zealanders. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's there, I guess, if you want to go looking for it. But it hasn't been broadcast deeper and deeper, almost uh, you know, behind people's backs. The, the military uh, and all of the organisations, including the intelligence, we'll come to that with five eyes, uh, have been part of this octopus over the world, which has now become a oct military octopus over the world. And it's premised on its nuclear terrorists. If anybody bothers, very easy to find, the communique of NATO, June 2021, the recent Madrid uh, declaration called the Strategic mm -hmm. Declaration, just go onto the NATO website, you'll just find a pay and a praise to how 
nuclear weapons are at the forefront of what they call their defense uh, strategy. And uh, New Zealand's documents officially say quite the opposite, including the signing of the TPNW, adherence to the um, NPT, uh, our own legislation, and so forth, and other and other dec- other conventions on uh, opposition to weapons of mass destruction. So, uh, so much. Oh, it looks yeah. like I'm preparing a brief, including <laughs> international humanitarian law, which we've signed up to. None of this fits. Yeah. But by joining NATO, and since 2010, it's deepened. And now we have a defence review, which says that New Zealand must get more higher-end technological weapons. We must inter- become interoperable, not just with NATO, but with Australia. Australia is a, a benchmark. And as Australia, I, I saw your new Defence Minister, Miles, so advocating that you will soon hit 2% of GDP. Does the man know what he's talking about in terms of what that deprives Australians? Yeah. Well, anyway. Um, I think the more people have heard the term interoperable, Matt, the more they it loses its um, shock value, frankly, because it's now become accepted. This is what we do. But I can tell the story. Uh, in 2013, I was having a meeting with the former Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, the late Malcolm Fraser. And now that year, an Australian had just been made a commander of the US fleet operating out of Hawaii, I believe. And I can tell you the former Australian Prime Minister who had been Prime Minister during a hot phase of the Cold War, it was as hard a man as a politician as you'd ever see. He was deeply shocked, deeply shocked that that would be happening, that an Australian would be brought in as a commander of US forces. And that to him who, who wrote a book, I've got. I brought. I thought I'd bring a copy for this discussion. Dangerous allies, um, which is a reference to the United Kingdom and the United States. And uh, he, the blurb of the book, book was: Australia has Australia needs an alliance with the United States for security, but Australia only needs security because of its alliance with the United States. That was his. Okay. That was his kicker. But he wrote a book about this because he demanded. That Australia needed to have an independent foreign policy, which we, which his argument was we'd never ever had, um, and so when people hear now, because I just in the general press reporting, the Australian military is completely interoperable with the United States military, um, and we have to understand that means we have no sovereign decision making capability at all um, by doing that. Now, um, Matt, let's just segue now to the Pacific because as a and the segue is the Solomon Islands because it relates to what we've all been talk- we've just been talking about with NATO and Ukraine, and it's and it's this. And I'll, I'll give the Australian perspective first, but um, with your experience, I want your views on it. So this this is what this is what um, triggered Peter Dutton in the as the Defence Minister during the uh, the election campaign over here on Anzac Day, which is a day we share with you guys. Um, to declare that Australia was prepared for war or preparing for war, right? We must prepare for war. That's what he said. And the issue was the claim, the hysterical claim that China may be building a a military base in the Solomon Islands. And everything that was said by Dutton, the prime minister at the time, Scott Morrison, the the man who was the opposition leader, who's now the prime minister, uh, Anthony Albanese, and our new foreign minister, 
uh, Penny Wong, as far as I was concerned, Matt, showed them to be complete hypocrites over their um, extreme denunciations of Russia for what it was doing to Ukraine, because they had denied Russia had any reason to go into Ukraine or any should have any concerns over Ukraine at all, or should be concerned that Ukraine may join NATO. This was, this was our message. Russia has no right to be concerned about that. Yet Ukraine is literally on the border of Russia. And we were saying that when it came to the Solomon Islands, which is 2000 kilometers from our border, that that would be a, an existential threat to Australia to have a Chinese military base there. And my understanding is that Anthony Albanese at the current Pacific Islands Forum has had a discussion with the Pacific Islands, sorry, the Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Sogavare, to, re to reiterate the view that Australia says it's, to Australia it's unacceptable for the Chinese to have a military base there, even though there's no plans for one, right? But we're, we're, we're nevertheless getting the message across. It's unacceptable for us to have a military base. I would then ask the question, <laughs> what if instead of having a military base in, a Chinese military base in the Solomons, what if, the Chinese military was arming the Solomon Islands. What if the Chinese military was recruiting and building up the, the army of the Solomon Islands and, um, and therefore had a permanent presence there, a permanent training presence, etc.? Would we say that constituted a, the, the equivalent of a military base? Because we now know that's what NATO has been doing in Ukraine all along. So yeah, even yeah. though even though Ukraine hasn't been part of NATO, NATO has been all throughout Ukraine. And this is what this is what triggered the Russians. But the Russians weren't allowed to be triggered by that, Matt. But we're allowed to be triggered by something that has no resemblance to that happening in the Solomon Islands. So that's where we're coming from on this. Um, you've had all this experience in the Pacific. Just comment on what you think about that whole circus and and then let's talk more about it. Well, so much there. And we don't have a monopoly on hypocrisy and double talk. And that's what we've got in New Zealand. I just make comment on, yes, I've read Dangerous Allies, and that book should be required reading for every Australian member of parliament and every New Zealand member of parliament. Malcolm Fraser, I, did, I never met him. Um, but uh, when I was staying in New Zealand because I didn't want to be conscripted into the... Well, my father didn't want me to be conscripted into the Australian Army. He was the minister for the army, I remember. Would have hated him. He was. He was the guy who did it. You're right. I think people used to burn pictures of him. But yeah. now they should put statues up to this wise advice. So we come to the, the Pacific. And here is colonialism and imperialism writ large, dressed up and talk about the family of the Pacific that's your politicians and mine are now using this soft talk. We are one family. Well, it's the family like Don Coriolani's godfather. Yeah. And, you know, you do what I say, or those are you in the family, you want to get out, I'll shoot you. But the question and the comparison with Ukraine is apt. Because if not only were the Chinese having military bases there, but were working to attack other countries, as in the Ukraine, as against the, the Donbass republics and the, the constant war against them right on the Russian border, the moving of offensive weapons right up to the Russian border. And not just in the Ukraine, of course, but in interference in many ways, both inside Russia and around 
uh, other countries in, in Russia. And the, the comparison would be, of course, yes, we'd be, we'd be right to talk about our security. But here we've got a situation where the Solomons have exercised their sovereign right uh, to make this limited police security arrangement with uh, China and some other aspects to it, but certainly not for putting a military base in there or anything more extensive than that. And suddenly, uh, my well, the Prime Minister of New Zealand rushes up there or sends her ministers, Penny Wong, uh, your Prime Minister, and they're saying to the Solomons, you know, you should be talking to us about this. The Solomons, quite rightly, never complained to Australia about signing up to AUKUS or the Quad or to any of the other military agreements that they've got, similarly with, with New Zealand. So once again, I say, you don't have a monopoly on hypocrisy. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we do. But it's also part of New Zealand's imperial role. I mean, we've seized many islands, New Zealand in the Pacific, uh, you have as well. And they're now viewed as aircraft carriers because they're quite good bases, uh, either now or later. I mean, the New Zealand Air Force lands on Nauru. They've got a strip there. Uh, they see, you know, Tonga and Fiji. Well, we didn't occupy Tonga. It was a British protectorate, a big influence there. Samoa, we did. And join that with all the American bases and the militarization of the Pacific. And you've got a powder keg. And uh, one thing that Jacinda Ardern is always saying is that she's dreadfully opposed to the militarization of the Pacific. Well, sorry, Prime Minister, you're part of that militarization. Small as the New Zealand, we've got, I think, 3,000 soldiers. Um, and we've uh, got eight Poseidons, uh, which can offensive, they're offensive airplanes. We can't afford them, but we've got them. And we're part now, growing part of this blue Pacific strategy with the United States and Australia and Japan. And so militarization, well, it's amazing that she can say this with a straight face. Uh, and then Paul old Solomons gets it in the neck for stepping outside the family. So, yes, I agree with you. Um, Why do you but in your view, you, you were actually... Um... I think I read when you were the associate foreign minister, you you had a totally different reaction to Chinese uh, activity among the Pacific Islands. What was your view, and why do you think the Pacific Islands do these deals with China? Well, I was run constantly by journalists who are obviously primed by you know, they don't always think of out of the blue um, to to get on touch with uh, New Zealand politicians about the danger of the Chinese. The Chinese are in the Pacific. The Chinese are using money. The Chinese are building this. The Chinese are doing that. I would say to them, well, could be. But have you looked at what New Zealand does, what Australia does, what the French do, what the European Union do? What on earth is the European Union doing in the Pacific giving aid? Uh, and the strings that they attach to it and the whining and the dining and the influence and the threats. And they've been doing it for a very long time. And by the way, Mr. and Mrs. Journalist, do you know that China itself was subject to this? They've got long experience in having a European and, and North American, uh, the United States, occupying their country and pushing them around. So actually, when they talk to these countries uh, and establish you know, sovereign relations with them, 
they're also coming from a similar background. They understand them. We've been part of the occupying forces of these countries. And that's the approach that we've now writ large. And perhaps you could mention the United States Vice President's breathtaking mm -hmm. speech laden with hypocrisy to the uh, Pacific Forum that's occurring right now. Yeah, that's right. Jacinta, uh, Kamala Harris, first of all, she was invited to speak while China's invitate, a request to be able to speak was knocked back. So I don't know who makes that decision. Enlighten us if you do. But she said, um, well, she, she bluntly called, warned, warned the Pacific Islanders about doing deals with so-called bad actors, which was a very undiplomatic slap at um, China as if, as if she had some moral authority to say so. Um, yeah, what did you think when you saw that? <laughs> well, you know, you get used to it uh, with these politicians. Uh, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. Uh, the, the, you know, as a minister, you had to meet with these basic war criminals. I mean, you know, it wasn't the same room as Tony Blair. And, you know, I thought, gosh, here I am with, if it had been 40 years earlier, the same same category as Ribbentrop and, yeah. and Hitler. You know, this man is a war criminal. And, of course, Bush. And people like that, uh, Chirac, all of them. And then when she spoke about uh, bad actors, and I thought um, to myself, well, thank, thank goodness at least you're laying out that what you're asking these countries to do is to join you in a war against China, to isolate China, to have it vulnerable, uh, to join in on the on the pretext that you're helping to defend these countries my god uh what malcolm fraser they should all these prime ministers and premiers in the pacific need to read his book the reason we need security is because we are an ally uh, of the united states and look all of our countries can have criticisms of another country china russia the united states we don't have to go to war with them, but we're being aligned up to say, you have to choose sides. And so her speech, nice as it was, the smile it was, comes with the, the fist and the velvet glove. And that's as, that's as clear as anything. And um, the, the Americans also announced, coinciding with the speech, that they're going to open up all these embassies across the Pacific Islands again, Matt. Um, what do you think the intention there is? Well... Here's again, it pays to read history so you don't repeat it. Uh, there was an embassy in Chile, of course, yeah. and your Australian embassy, when the Americans were too obvious, took over the role of lining up the military and all the reactionary forces to kill thousands of people and introduce a reign of terror in Chile. Uh, that was, you know, respect for the international rules-based order, which we heard so much about from Kamala Harris, because that's the other thing when they talked about our, our ministers to it, we shared democratic values. And the breathtaking ignorance of it, when I hear the ministers in my country just repeating this, uh, when they're sitting down with the country that Noam Chomsky, amongst others, has pointed out as the biggest and most violent rogue state in the world. And there we are, as the rules-based order, and they've had 60 years of illegal sanctions on Cuba, because it's dared to not follow their orders and many other countries. You come back to the Pacific, the, the countries here, many of them want their independence. They want to be treated, uh, you know, not 
as this diplomatic protection racket that we've run New Zealand and Australia in the Pacific for so long for, often for these other powers, the United Kingdom, uh, the United States. And um, the, the language that's being used is part of the language of continuing oppression of these countries under the guise of protecting them. I'll just tell you one story, if it might be of interest to your listeners. I was, in my role as Associate Minister of Foreign Affairs, I had ministerial responsibilities, and one was for development aid. And one of the countries that New Zealand kept under its wing as part of the diplomatic protection racket, just as Australia ran one in the Pacific, was Tonga. Tonga run by a kleptocratic monarchy. Mm. Um, and it's only recently, in the last decade, been able to have elections of the people. I had very close ties with the Tongan community in New Zealand, a big Tongan community. And that's why our rugby league team is getting much better because we've got Tongans in it. Okay. Now, um, the people used to come to my office and cry about the depredations of the Tongan monarchy and the elite in Tonga and how they were bled dry of their resources, their land, etc. Cry in my office. I knew what the regime was like. I knew from the figures that the aid and the money we gave went to the top. We had a report. It was a secret report. It was later released. Uh, whistleblower released it where the New Zealand embassy pointed out that this was a country uh, reversed Robin Hood. You know, they robbed the poor to pay the rich. We knew that. And the excuse was, that's the Tongan way. This is the M M Ministry of Foreign Affairs, your equivalent of DFAT, telling me as a minister, other ministers and the parliament, don't criticize Tonga. They love having this system that's culturally insensitive. They were yearning, talk about democracy, they were yearning for democracy. No sight of the United States championing them, no sight of New Zealand. They had to do it under a courageous leader, Pohiva. So I said to their prime minister, who happened to be the, the king's son, youngest son, and the king put his family everywhere else. They, they were like Sahata's family, you know, Mr. and Mrs. 10%. Yeah. Everything went happened. They owned the airline, they owned this, they owned everything. I said, you know, we're not going to keep giving you money because... You know, we're his children. One of the things we gave money for was schools. His children went to school in Switzerland. <laughs> the money came from us. Right. And I was banned from Tonga by the Minister of Police, Clive Edwards, who I knew had been a lawyer in New Zealand. And I was, even though I was a minister in New Zealand, I was sanctioned, banned, because we wouldn't play ball. In the Cook Islands, I did negotiations and... Oh, just back on that Tonga, our foreign affairs established didn't want us to lift a finger and were absolutely against my speaking out on this topic of democracy. The same type of culture, the same sort of people are there now spouting about democracy. Yeah. In the Cook Islands, when I negotiated, the prime minister, well, the premier of the time, leant across to me in the middle of the negotiations for you know what aid they'd get and say, would you and your family like to spend time at the resort? It doesn't cost you anything. We pay for you to come up. I looked at him and said, you can't do that. And he said, oh, don't worry. All the New Zealand members of parliament stay here. Oh. <laughs> I, I took it back to the cabinet and said, do you know what our members of parliament do? They accept a gift from a premier to whom country we have relations with. Yeah. Uh, and then I had some of them come back to me and say, could you fix this? Could you give money for this? Could you give money for that? Told me to get lost. But... The, there was muttering about, well, this isn't good enough, but nothing was ever done. And I think the same members of parliament continued, and they're probably to this day, 
still go to the Cook Islands and have a holiday free on the Cook Island taxpayer or the money that comes via New Zealand. I'm just giving examples of our duplicity in New Zealand, in the Pacific, under the guise of being a friend and part of the family, nothing else. We've also spied on them. That's our role. The Five Eyes divides up the world. New Zealand has got the whole of this South Pacific to spy on. And Edward Snowden has told us they take everything, including what you and I are talking about now, and up it goes, plus the human intelligence. Australia does its part of the world. And our job is to spy on friendly or supposedly friendly countries as to what they're up to. And of course, that gets fed back to Washington. Washington is very informed on the Pacific, on the proclivities, on the people. Uh, yeah. Well, this is an aside from that. Apparently, MI6 is complaining because um, countries like Indonesia, after we, we tapped the phone of the president and after we, Australia, led the um, opposition to Huawei in oh, yeah. our, in our uh, uh, cyber, uh, cyber systems, um, Indonesia has gone with China and Huawei and um, the intelligence agencies are complaining that they don't, they can't tap those phones as easily, <laughs> if at, if at all. Um, and we wonder why we wonder why they've done it. And I do know there's a former ASIO director general in Australia um, uh, who recently was on television. He was quite frank. He made the point that um, what we accuse China of um, when it comes to cyber attacks, etc., and, and spying. He said, go look at the Defence Signals Directorate website. Um, they say it there. We do this, at, you know, we we spy on other countries too, right? So so let's get that kind of um, hypocrisy out of the way. Can I get a general comment, though, for you, from you, Matt? Because, um, uh, like, you know, hard-bitten politicians would tell you that all this is, is necessary, all this hypocrisy, you know, doing having having um, these relationships is necessary. Uh, you know, even with bad countries, etc. Because China is such a threat, it is such a threat to the Pacific. It's such a threat to the world. It's a terrible regime, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everyone knows the the general narrative. Um, what's your view of that? Well, if you're going to make those statements, bring out the facts, uh, and the facts are that uh, in terms of wars that have got us into wars, uh, being allied with the United States is the problem, as uh, Malcolm Fraser pointed out. So we've gone to war in Korea and leveled the country uh, in a war that kept going, not necessary, but as part of the United States strategy to destroy it and try and attack China at that time. The dreadful war in Indochina, 5 million people lie dead in that continent involved with the overthrow of um, President Sukarno in 1965, uh, American wars, foreign wars. Prior to that Second World War, New Zealand was in every war that the British Empire had going uh, and you know, gunned down people in the streets of Samoa in 1929, the New Zealand forces there, and the assassinated the leaders of the uh, independence movement of Samoa. War after war after war, uh, that we've been involved in, you got involved in Iraq. We kept going in Afghanistan. The security resolution was arrest bin Laden, but of course that was not their plan. They wanted to go on. And China, we haven't been dragged into a war with China. We haven't been dragged into a war uh, with Russia. 
uh, we've been dragged into war with this imperial alliance and willingly actually i mean it's been part of the it's, it's very hard for australians and new zealanders with a picture of what an imperialist is perhaps with a pith helmet and a swagger stick and, and directing people in the fields yeah. know that it's also these policies of control over the world and hegemony and of course that's what nato is about many scholars have pointed out that the united states doesn't care as the leading largest imperialist power in the world is not so much whether a government is a communist government or this government or that government it's if it tries to be independent make its own decisions and that's what the crime is and that's when they get a coup that's when the embassies they set up going back to your question about why set up embassies yes that's why look by that you know that joke i think it's changed now that the united states will never have a coup because there's no american embassy <laughs> well, i guess when they attack on january the 6th they almost had a coup they had a president there so no 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 but hang on john bolton was interviewed yesterday uh, the day America announced it's opening up all these embassies across the Pacific, and he was defending, he was uh, claiming that the January 6th event wasn't a coup because it was so disorganised. And he said this, he said, I don't know if you saw it, but he said he knows what he's talking about because I, he said, as someone who has organised and planned coup d'etat around the world, he, he hastened to add around the world, not in this country, and the the CNN interviewer didn't blink an eyelid. It's uh, Reuters reported a lot of people took notice that John Bolton has admitted to um, planning multiple coups around the world, and that's okay. <laughs> well, that, that the planning the coups, that's one of the things that we should look at in the Pacific. I, I, I mean, the criticisms came out, for instance, Kiribati not attending, and the Kiribati has yeah. said that the, the issue has been their Melanesian, the Polynesian side of the islands. Uh, they've monopolize the leadership positions it's melanesia's terms okay that's a dispute that's going on whatever but the opposition leader has come out clearly primed by her sources in australia new zealand the united states to say that it's actually china that's behind it once again no proof no evidence china's directing this uh, making this person do it i think it's projection because our side is used to telling people you better do this or there's consequences uh, and I would say that one of the things we need to keep an eye on uh, in both our countries is the use of our resources to work with the United States to get rid of governments that aren't going to jump to the old colonial tune. And there's great danger of that uh, happening. In fact, it's probably happening right at this moment. Because can I say from my own experience uh, in New Zealand as a minister, the disloyalty that we experienced at the top levels of military and intelligence. Uh, I, I was a prime mover of having an independent aid agency out of the hands of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, your D, DFAT. Yeah. The reason being is that they just use, MFAT just used for, uh, foreign aid money to buy people. When Mike Moore, one of our former prime ministers, wanted to be head of the WTO, MFAT goes around the world uh, giving money to about 90, I looked at it, it was a big map once, 96 countries, giving them a, a latrine here, a school there, uh, whatever that might be able to do inside that country. In return, they give their vote for New Zealand, um, that sort of thing. And when we set up an independent aid agency, which actually looked at what is effective aid yeah. uh, based on scientific principles, and we succeeded in getting a semi-autonomous agency, not 
the complete agency that I wanted. MFAT worked against me and also the Minister of Foreign Affairs who was supported, Phil Goff, to undermine that, to work against it because they saw disappearing uh, their pot of gold to bribe people. They went on radio undermining it. it just, I mean, I've read all about what happened to Gough Whitlam's government, and that's a lesson for all of us. But these people did the same. And when, when the, uh, in New Zealand, when the um, Afghanistan, the, the Twin Towers occurred, we were supposed to be shut out after the, taking our decision not to have nuclear weapons. We were famously dumped as an ally, and we're just a friend of the United States. So we weren't supposed to have any intelligence, any military cooperation. That continued between the heads of these agencies uh, who were basically saying, look, it'll pass, these people will go, and the Americans kept them in the tent. So when 9-11 when occurred, they jumped on a plane. I didn't know, I was a cabinet minister, I didn't know they had authorization. Went to uh, Washington and requested them to request the New Zealand government to send forces. So they were pushing their own agenda. What you're talking about now, what you're talking about now, sorry to interrupt, Matt, is Five Eyes. This is, this is the Five Eyes network, how it operates. And in your case, it's a bit unique because of this political opposition to New Zealand being involved in the nuclear umbrella, etc. What you just said is, despite the politics and the democratic will being, no, we're not part of this, your defence and intelligence agencies operated as if that wasn't the case and their message to their Five Eyes partners, and the Five Eyes is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom and the United States intelligence agencies, they're telling their Five Eyes partners that the democratic will will pass, we'll, we're, we're sticking with you guys and, and, they look, and they found a way like that to push New Zealand down a certain path in the context of 9-11. Oh, constantly. And their point of reference for our our uh, foreign affairs and our diplomats is, what do the Americans think? What do the, what do the Australians think? Uh, one of my staff members who'd been in MFAT uh, told me, he'd, he'd left them, that the instruction they were given is, if in doubt, vote like the three, Australia, UK, and the US, look how they're voting. And that shows uh, many of the things that we did. And I constantly <coughs> found MFAT staff members, advisors pining for the days uh, when they were part of the club, because it, you're part of the G20. We're not big enough for that. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of envy here that we can't quite be there. They like to be with those clubs, but it's more dangerous than that. We, we do play a role. And uh, the intelligence agencies in New Zealand clearly, despite whatever they say, pass on information, share it with their mates, to such that members of parliament have been spied on. There's some famous cases now. Richard Norther mentioned the Labour MP, instrumental in the 87 uh, legislation. Uh, he was spied on all through his parliamentary career. Uh, Keith Locke, uh, as a Green member of parliament, uh, foreign affairs spokesperson, he was spied upon even though he was a member of parliament and information passed, particularly with the American embassy, as shown by the uh, Julian Assange's uh, uh, material and leaked yep, yep. Uh, into, and from WikiLeaks. Uh, we saw the extent of what the American embassy does, but also what our embassies do uh, throughout the world. And so those are all part of the uh, aggressive strategy throughout the world and basically controlling as much as they can the public opinion in our own countries.
uh, as well. But Matt, if you've um, your experience with the the Five Eyes networks as you've as you've uh, laid out, um, would you describe that it's that it's a permanent, for want of a better word, anti-democratic pressure on New Zealand to to make sure that as good as a politician may be or or, or whatever good intentions they may have, it's very hard to follow an independent course. Oh, absolutely, because uh, we. Probably like you, we 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 don't in New Zealand. Our our parliament doesn't have an oversight committee from the parliament of the intelligence agencies. It's really? wrapped up in uh, national security. We can't release this. Uh, our allies, uh, we can't compromise our allies. And always in front of allies, I said the allies were shared values. So we've just talked about the war crimes and all of our allies, and that New Zealand has has also yeah. taken part in over the centuries. And so this nonsense is is pervaded all the time by ministers, including the, the present crop. I mean, I'm having, and in the party, we're having arguments with them when they keep this meaningless statements all the time about shared democratic values when it's just the opposite, of course. So back to your point about the, the intelligence agents, they are a threat to democracy because we've seen uh, what has happened through, through the revelations of Edward Snowden, through Julian Assange, which, by the way, the great crime that uh, yeah. he, he's persecuted, which we know about, and the shame of his own government abandoning him uh, for telling the truth. And our ministers go to this, and I tell you, it doesn't take much. They're patted on the head. They're part of New Zealand, I think, is even more than Australia. Australia likes to be there with the big people as well, but Australia is bigger. But New Zealand is hungry to be, you know, to be at the table and be with people who actually commit war crimes. Don't just talk about them. And um, but our operators around the world are probably very useful. Today, much intelligence is gathered, of course, by electronic means. We know that. Yeah. But human intelligence is also important. So our embassies can say, "There's that Ruby. Okay, look, dreadful things he's saying." Uh, maybe we should keep an eye on him, you know, Matt Robson or whatever, yeah. this union leader, that particular person. And in the worst cases, as in Indonesia, you know, our embassy staff and spies who were ever there help to gather information and hand it over to those who then take revolvers and shoot people in the middle of the night. Yeah. Well, um, uh, as usual with these kind of discussions, Matt, we could talk all day. Uh, but we better wrap it up. I have one last question, though. We should try and end on a positive note. One thing that Australia, you know, you're our cousins. The, the Kiwis are our cousins across the ditch. Um, uh, we love you unless you beat us at um, cricket. Uh, Not very often. <laughs> we've, given, we've given up. We've given up caring about you beating us at rugby. <laughs> that that just goes without saying. Um, but we, but we have a, we have something else in common, which is both of us have incredibly profitable uh, trade relationships with China. And if you measured our national interest, our economic national interest, independently, you would say, well, that's an important relationship. We should cultivate it. Australia has aggressively trashed its relationship with China in the last few years. Um, I understand there's a, there's a. You know, China is the, the the trade side of things is one of the reasons there's also a backlash against Ardern on in the uh, United in the in New Zealand. Um, if we're going to step back 
from the brink of war, from this trajectory, would you say that we should, um, you know, look at, at at pursuing our independent national interests more forcefully, including the positive sides like a trade relationship, and that it's right for us to prioritise that over um, these military alliances? Oh, of course. Uh, the, of course, it's mixed up with the critics who say can't trade with or damage the relationship with China because we're standing up for democratic values. You can have trade relations with all sorts of countries and still be critical of this or that policy as they can be of your country. And Saudi Arabia proves that. We sure. still buy oil from Saudi Arabia. We don't go to war with them. But in the case of China, it's even less reason to um, go to war uh, with the many areas that we need to cooperate. But yes, our business community uh, is very, very concerned and worried about what happens with the, the trajectory of making China official enemy number one or number two or equal with the Russia. Uh, not Russia so much as we don't have such a big trading relationship, but sensible people say, hey, uh, we should also be having good relations with Russia on all, all sorts of levels. We've never <laughs> Who declared them an official enemy? And China's the same. But this is part of the nervous breakdown that I think the, the government of New Zealand, the Labour government's having. Uh, they haven't got an alternative yet. They're being pressured into saying that um, take a stand against China. There's the hope that the EU, UK, uh, United States will replace it. But realists know that we're intermeshed with the Chinese economy at so many different levels. And so we should be. Not only with that, but of course, with tourism and, and yeah. students coming here, et cetera. Uh, we haven't reached the level of anti-Chinese hysteria that we've witnessed in Australia and the co-option of so many different institutions in Australia in the Hate China campaign and, and the concern that your own Chinese-descended communities, the, the very yeah. many of them for different sorts of backgrounds. But there's a worry in New Zealand that that's just sitting there uh, because the opinion polls so that whereas there was a favourable attitude to China, it's now becoming hostile as the of China aggressive. There's a racist element to it as well. You know, it's much easier to hate the Chinese than sure. someone who, for the European part of the population. But the fear of China is there. But um, we probably in New Zealand, hopefully, haven't gone as far down the road as Australia has got. And your new prime minister and foreign minister seem to be deepening it. The, the suspicion, the, the lectures to China, uh, you know, when China has, I saw, put up, I thought, quite reasonable demands, hey, why don't we have mature relations? And your Prime Minister, Albanese, says they were not going to put into demands. They were just suggesting they get back onto a normal, mature relationship. We haven't gone as far. And that shows the dilemma of the uh, Adern government. On the one hand, more and more integration with NATO and its plans and the demands and the constant pressure to choose sides, the business community here and the general population saying, hey, do we want to go to war with China? Do we want to break our economic relations? And those contradictions sit there in front of everybody. And I'm hopeful that common sense and rationality will prevail in the end. Well, Matt, I'm hopeful uh, as well. And I think the first step, though, is for people to recognise what you said at the very beginning, um, that this is headed for war because it should be unthinkable. And, and of course, um, back to my friend uh, Malcolm Fraser, 
Um, he had no compunctions warning that war would mean nuclear war. Uh, there's other people, uh, even the former defense, Deputy Defence Secretary of Australia, Hugh White, has emphasised that again just in the last few weeks. That's the reality. I think we should all agree that's unthinkable. And if we agree that that's unthinkable, we need to step back and, and look at the picture. I think you've contributed an excellent perspective for people who would want to do that. Um, and let's hope that yeah, rationality does prevail. Certainly, that's what we're, we have to fight for, which is the reason we've had this um, conversation today. Matt, thanks, thanks for your contribution. Thanks for your bluntness. Thanks for your time. Um, and uh, thanks for your perspective. Okay.